0: following is a presentation of Amarillo Fellowship, a community dedicated to spreading the love and hope of Christ. For more information and other podcasts, visit AmarilloFellowship.com. Wow, you may be seated. Hey, it is good to be an Amarillo Fellowship Church. You know, I'm from uh, Amarillo, so I feel like I've just come back home. And uh, I had the chance of of just driving around yesterday, and a lot of memories were coming back uh, from living here. And, you know, I forgot that Texans are so friendly, I forgot that, and uh, you guys are the friendliest people on earth, and uh, man, your hospitality is over the top, and so it is really, really good to be with you guys. Uh, You know, Pastor Richie mentioned that uh, we've known each other for many, many years, Uh, really in the last uh, couple of years we've connected and have really loved getting to know your pastors, Pastor Richie and Pastor Pam. These are amazing people, and guys, you are blessed, and um, you know, they are They're amazing leaders, pastors, uh, amazing family. Uh, you know, everything that you see in them, uh, you, you see quality, and you don't see that everywhere. Uh, something else that, that really stands out to me is that, uh, you know, they have two kids. They have Richie third, and they have Christian, and here are two guys, two kids that have grown up in the ministry, and they have a passion for the house of God. They have a passion for ministry. Uh, they have a passion to serve, and let me tell you, you guys have done something right by raising your kids like that. You need to give them a big, big hand. These are amazing leaders. Amazing. You know, Kay and I, pastor in Albuquerque, and we have three boys. Uh, two of our sons are full-time staff members at our church uh, doing just incredible job. And then we have a third son who is a doctor of pharmacy. We call him our family druggie. And uh, he is, um, he's very much involved in our church. And, and uh, our other two boys in ministry, they call him the, the smart one. And uh, so... Uh, They all married uh, great ladies, godly ladies, and uh, they're multiplying like rabbits. We already have seven grandkids. It blows my mind. I'm not old enough to have seven grandkids, but, but we have that. And so it, it, is, uh, it is a lot of fun. Kay and I, uh, we are at the, uh, the peak of, of enjoyment in life. I have never enjoyed uh, pastoring. I've never enjoyed family life as much as I, I do today. And uh, the clock is ticking on me, and I've got something that I want to share with you. And uh, again, what a great privilege it is to be with you. Hey, what I would like for you to do today is sit on the edge of your seat. And I want to challenge your mind. I want to challenge your thinking today. Uh, if you're a note taker, get ready to take some notes because what I ask our people every week is to at least take one thought away that you will apply to your life. If you will apply one little thing every single week in a year's time, uh, your life will be radically changed. And so um, I, want to just, I want to just tell you that whenever you, you think something, Your thinking will produce feelings and emotions, and your feelings and emotions will produce uh, how you live out your life. It produces your behavior. Uh, We're already three months into our new year, uh, and now we're entering into April. And do you realize that 94% of all Americans who set a new year resolution three months in have failed in their resolution? And here's the reason why. Because all of these people tried to change their behavior. You cannot change your behavior. You have to go back far enough to change the way that you think that changes your feelings and emotions that will drive your behavior. And so what I want to talk to you about today is you can't kill a dream. You can't kill a dream. Now turn to your neighbor this morning and say that. You can't kill a dream. You can't kill a dream. All right, you got that out of the way? You don't have to talk to them for the rest of the day. All right, you got it. You know, when I was a 12-year-old kid, I experienced something that I'd never experienced before and I've never experienced since. When our family gathered around a little black and white TV and we watched the live dramatic broadcast of the first man to walk on the moon, it was breathtaking. The entire world stopped at that very moment and watched, and I'll never forget that moment in my life. As a 12 year old kid, later that night, I walked out and looked into the sky at a full moon, sitting there thinking there is actually a man that is living or walking on the moon. And and I think it was at that moment that I realized that nothing is impossible in this world, nothing is impossible. And you know, they did the impossible when they did that, because when you think about holding your iPhone this morning, there's more uh, technology in your iPhone than the entirety of the Apollo spacecraft, and it was impossible. But let me tell you the reason why it was possible, because John F. Kennedy stood in Rice Stadium, and he declared to a nation that before this decade is over, we're going to put a man on the moon and bring him home safely. What he did that day was he declared a vision, and he declared a deadline, and America. Rose up and they met the impossible and they did it. It was also in the early 1900s that taking flight had become an obsession with Americans, that we wanted to fly more than anything else, and Samuel Langley was leading the charge in all of that. He had a seat at Harvard and he worked at the Smithsonian. He was funded by the government. He He was connected to some of the greatest minds in the world and the New York Times were following him around everywhere he went because he was getting close to developing a machine that would actually fly. But it wasn't very far from where he was that in Dayton, Ohio, were the Wright brothers. They were working in a bicycle shop. They had no college degree. They had no funding. They had no one following them around. But every day after work, they would load their old truck up with all these extra parts and go out to the airfield. And they were expecting failure. They were taking all the extra parts. They were expecting another crash but it was on December the 17th in 1903 that that machine finally took off and it flew for the very first time and when it did no one was there to record the first flight in history you know one of the things that we think about is is how in the world could uneducated men figure out controlled power flight how is that possible when others were more funded, when others were more educated? And the answer to that question is that they were driven by a passion. Every dream in our lives have to be driven by a passion. And you know, God drops a a dream in my life and in your life. There is not one single person in this building that God has not whispered and dropped a dream into your life. And the only reason that God ever places a dream inside of you is to change something, to change you, to change a family, to change a community, to change a generation, to change a world. But some of you have stopped dreaming. Some of you have fallen into the routine of mundane and every day is the same day and you've lost your dream. There was a man whose name is Gordon McKenzie and he worked for Hallmark uh, Cards for many, many years and he went down as a creative genius uh, for that organization. When he retired, his favorite thing to do in life was to go into elementary schools and speak to, uh, to all the children. And he'd always start with the first graders and he'd walk into the classroom and the first thing he would say to them is, how many of you are artists? And he said, in every school it was the same, that every hand shot up. Every child was an artist. And he said so many times they were raising both hands. I mean, they were artists. And it was thrilling for him to see that. But he would go from grade to grade to grade. He said by the time he got to the sixth grade, he would ask the very same question, how many artists do we have in here? And He said that now, in the sixth grade, only two to three hands would go up and only half-heartedly and looking around, making sure that no one was giggling, no one was laughing at them and making fun of them. What Gordon McKenzie said that I began to realize is that by the time they enter into the sixth grade, that our kids are already developing a fear. And he said it's not a fear of failure, but it's the fear of being judged by others, And when we get our eyes on what other people are thinking about us, it becomes the dream killer in our lives. You see, God, when he developed you, he put a dream nature in you. Because how often do you find that you sit around during the day and your mind begins to drift and you daydream during the day? And as you lay down at night, you dream all night long. There's a dream nature inside of you. And what I want to tell you is don't ever stop dreaming and don't ever stop believing. I want to go to Genesis chapter 37, and there's an amazing story of of Joseph. And when you talk about a dream, you automatically go to the dreamer, Joseph. And here's this amazing story, and it starts off by saying that Jacob the father loved Joseph more than all the other sons and gave him a very special gift, which was a coat of many colors. Well, everyone wore coats back then. I mean, all the brothers had a coat. Uh, most of the coats were, were just, you know, off-white, knee-length, merely functional. Everyone had one, but in contrast to what the father gave Joseph, didn't even compare. Because what was given to him was full length, went all the way down to the ankle. An array of colors, expensive cloth, and this is what royalty wore. What the father gave Joseph as a 17-year-old kid is what kings wore and princes wore, and whenever he took that robe his father gave to him and he put it on, as he stepped outside in front of his brothers, he looked like royalty, and he walked like royalty, and he began to strut like royalty because he had the favor wrapped around him. And any time the father picks you out of a crowd and wraps you in favor, you can't help but celebrate, and you can't, and others can't help but notice what God has done in your life. And what you find is that Joseph had a dream, had a dream standing in a field, and it was an odd dream of where standing in a wheat field that all the wheat began to bow toward him, bowing down. And what the dream was all about, that God was giving Joseph the authority over the harvest. What I find so fascinating about this story is the very dream that God gave Joseph is what God gives every born-again believer. It's the very same dream because in our lives, what God has given to us is the dream to, to be able to take authority over the harvest and in your lifetime, you play a part of winning thousands and thousands and thousands of people to Christ because every God-given dream has to be connected to the harvest. So what's your dream? What is your dream? Think about it for a moment. What do you dream about? And whenever you think about your dream that I want a college degree or, or I want to be a business owner, I want to be a mom, I want to be a dad, I, I want to be a millionaire by the age of 30. And the question is, why do you want that? Why are you asking God to bless you in your dream? And whenever you begin to really ask the question, why? Why? That all of a sudden it changes everything. And as you begin to call upon God and saying, God, I need a college degree. God, I need to to be a business owner. Well, the reason why now that you understand is that I want to be a business owner and I want to be successful, that I may have the ability to fund ministry in the church. That I want to raise my children. I want to be a mom and a dad, but I don't want to be just a mom or a dad, but I want the anointing of God to lead me and guide me of where in my home I'm raising up godly leaders and workers world changers. I want to be a millionaire by the age of 30, but you've got to ask the question why. And you're saying, God, help me achieve this, that I might be able to help fund and, and launch churches and plant churches all around the world, and then all of a sudden everything changes in your life. Because your dream will never be blessed until you tie your dream to the purposes of God. And your dream is never about you, but your dream is about what God is going to do through you. And you've got to listen to the whisper of God. And Joseph heard the whisper of God. It was in a dream, and he heard what God was, was speaking to you, him, and, and what is God speaking to you about? I mean, do you know the voice of God? Do you detect the voice of how God is speaking to you? You know what, what kind of blows me away is that we all seem to detect the voice of the devil more than we detect the voice of God. How many times have we heard people say, man, the devil is on my back. He just is relentless. He won't let go. He's just always on my back, whispering in my ear, tempting me every single day. And we detect that voice, and yet we feel like God is completely silent. But how many times have you been driving around in your car? You're all by yourself, and you begin to have thoughts of inspiration of how you can be a better father, a better mother, a better spouse, a better person, how that you can better your, your business. Great thoughts that come out of nowhere. And what that is, it's the voice of God. Because we detect the voice of the devil through temptation, but we're able to detect the voice of God through inspiration. And when you are inspired, sitting around and thinking, understand that that's the voice of God that is speaking to you, inspiring you to be greater because it's part of the vision that God has given to you. Then at Genesis 37 and 5, Joseph had, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. I want you to notice this that not everybody's going to be happy about your dream. When you finally decide to rise up above the status quo, when you rise up above a poverty mentality, when you decide in your life that today I'm going to rise out of the prison of the average and I'm not going to live like everybody else, but I'm going to live by the way that God has called me and designed me at that moment, don't expect everyone to stand around and applaud you because people really aren't too excited about you rising above them, you outdoing them, you living at a higher level than them, and the naysayers come out of the woodwork and they have so much negativity to begin to speak into our lives and we have a tendency to listen to the voice of people instead of the voice of God. You know, whenever you think about opinions, it's interesting because whenever you meet someone, you develop a, an opinion about them. You know, you have an opinion about someone, someone has an opinion about you. You know what the word opinion means? It means your assessment of them. It means your judgment of them. That's what it is to assess someone. And it's crazy to me why we would ever give an ordinary person the power to put on a judge's robe and to pick up a judge's gavel and give them the authority to speak into our lives and to sentence our lives to be mediocre simply by what they say. Remember, by what you listen to and by what you dwell on, if they're telling you something, you begin to think about that, then the Bible says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What they speak into your life is what you're going to become if you listen to it. And you see, what happens is we give the people around us the authority to speak into our lives and they become the judge of our lives and they are declaring and sentencing us and they're saying that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not good looking enough, you'll never be able to sing, you'll never speak in front of people, you'll never get that job and we listen to their authority because we've given that to them and then we come back down and live at a level which they've stated instead of what God has stated in your life. Tom Brady who plays for the New England Patriots. I have never been a Patriot fan. We have some Cowboy fans in here. Of course we do. All right. I need to move from New Mexico over here. They're all Denver fans over there. I don't know what's wrong with those people. But um, you know Tom Brady played in the Super Bowl and it was it was an amazing game. And, and again I've never been a, a great fan of his and And I'm watching this game at halftime. Everyone has written them off, never win this game, so far behind. No one in the history of the Super Bowl has ever made this kind of comeback. And yet he came back, led that team, won the Super Bowl again for the fifth time. There was no dispute after that game that Tom Brady goes down as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Two weeks ago, Tom Brady posted something that I came across and I want to read it to you. What Tom Brady said was, he said, Today, I came across my old combine t-shirt from 17 years ago. The combine is when they bring in all of the new players into the NFL and they assess them. And he says, let me read to you the assessment that they gave me that day. Tom Brady has a poor physical build, skinny, lacks great physical strength, lacks mobility to avoid the rush, lacks a real a really strong arm can't throw a tight spiral he has he's a system types player unable to ad-lib and gets knocked down easily that's their assessment of him and at the end of that he said you can prove them right or you can prove them wrong it's all up to you what I want to tell you again, I want to remind you that naysayers cannot kill your dream. No matter what someone speaks into your life, it cannot kill what God has placed inside of you. In Genesis 37 and 18, when they saw him afar off, they conspired against him and said, here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dream!" They didn't even call him by his name. This is their brothers. But they called him by his dream. In life, people may forget you and they may forget your name, but they will never forget your dream because it's the power of a dream that God places inside of you. In verse 20, But they said we should kill him and tell Father that a wild beast has devoured him and we shall see what will become of his dream. It's dream haters. Dream haters are everywhere. And you know, your enemy, when you look at this, and you see this from this passage Your enemy is smart enough to know that what God has placed inside of you can come about. But your enemy is dumb enough to believe that he can stop what God has placed in your heart. And then in verse 24, and they took him and they threw him into a cistern. And the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. They just threw him into a a deep, dry, dusty hole. And when he lands at the bottom of the hole, that hole resembles a grave, laying in the bottom of that hole, that grave that day. Everything in Joseph's life died. His hope, his dream, his ambition, his desires, everything died in the hole, laying there, knowing that it was all over, that he looks at himself as nothing but a foolish dreamer. How could I have ever believed this? As a 17-year-old kid, it was too too good to be true. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm an embarrassment. And failure is what destroys us. Failure. The thought of failure. We can't can't hardly take it. One of the saddest stories I think I have ever read in my life was about Kathy Ornsby who ran track for North Carolina State University. She was the record holder for the 10,000-meter race, and she was coming down to the championship, and everyone believed that she would break her old record. Everyone wanted to talk to Kathy. Everyone wanted to interview her, and now it was the day of the race, the biggest race of her life. She was jittery. She was nervous. This had to be the best run of her life. The gun sounded. They took off. But for some reason, she could never get into her stride. Some reason, it was just just a struggle and a battle for her. And she kept falling further and further and further behind the pack. When they came across the finish line, she did not get first. She did not get second. She did not get third. But she came in fifth place. And she was shattered when she came across the finish line, shaking her head like, What just happened? Tears were streaming down her face, and every reporter there, they're rushing her, trying to get an interview with her. Kathy, what happened to you today? And she could not face it, and she ran by every reporter, and she just kept running. And she just kept running and running until she ran to the other side of the stadium, and she ran out the stadium doors, out into the street, and she just kept running and running mile after mile, and tears streaming down her face, heartbroken, shattered, and she just kept running until she got to the outskirts of the city, and she ran up on a high overpass, so distraught that through the embarrassment of everyone in the world watching this failure race, she no longer wanted to live, and she leaped off of the bridge, landing on the asphalt down below. And it did not kill her, but it paralyzed her for the rest of her life. All because of a failure. One failure. Moms and dads, let me tell you something. If there's anything you can tell your your kids and teach them, is to teach them that failure is their greatest friend. Failure is not your problem. Failure is not a bad thing. Failure is the greatest thing in our lives. Teach your children that, that, that failure is their best friend in the world because you can never be great until you've walked through a season of failure. You can never stand in front of people and sing to thousands and thousands until you've gone through the failure of a whole lot of sour notes. You can never stand in front of people and be, and be excellent and, and, and do it well until you have gone through a process of failure and stumbling and, and failure, because there have been so many times that I've walked off our stage at our church, walked out the back door, got in my vehicle, started driving home thinking that was the worst sermon that anyone has ever preached in their life. I mean, the worst. And, and you know, you just feel like you never, ever, ever want to do it again. But it's Failure that takes you to where you want to go. Remember this, that failure is the precursor of phenomenal. If you ever want to be phenomenal, then you have got to walk through the land of failure, and failure is your greatest friend. It's not your enemy. You know, if you're under an attack today, and you just feel like everything is caving in, it's not an indication to give up, but it's an indication that you're on the right track, and you're right where God wants you to be. You know, when you think about a God-given dream, this is what I found. Every God-given dream will go through three different stages. There's the birth of a dream, there's the death of a dream, and there's the resurrection of a dream. Why does a God dream have to go through a death? And the reason why is because it has to die to your own human origin. It has to die to your own talent and to your own death. And then God will rise it, raise it up, resurrect that into the supernatural. Let me tell you about an epic failure in my life. Pastoring our church, we had been the same size of congregation for 14 years. I did everything in my power to rock that thing, to get it moving, and nothing we did would cause any growth in that church. 14 years of just staying the same size. What we realized is that if we ever had a future, that we're going to have to relocate. We were on a small piece of land. It was all boxed in, landlocked, and we had two small buildings. But if we ever were going to dream and expand, we had to relocate. And so I cast the vision to our people. And I said, guys, we're going to relocate. And I took them into a three-year capital campaign, raising money. The people were motivated. They began to give, and and they gave at a high, high level. I mean, everyone giving because we were going to relocate. We put a big for sale sign up in, in front of our property and it was gigantic for sale. We're going to sell this thing and sell it quickly and then we're going to move. It was during that time we bought 12 acres of land right off of the highway and we we're going to build next year. I kept saying it over and over. Next year we're going to build but our property didn't sell and we needed that money to put down as a down payment on a new property. The second year went by. The third year went by. The fourth year went by. And we had not had one offer on that building. The fifth year went by. Sixth year went by. Seventh year went by. And not one offer on that building. Every year I stood in front of our people. Next year we're going to build. Next year we're going to build. And everyone became so weary. The 12 acres of land that we had purchased had turned into nothing but an absolute nightmare. I mean, everything that could go wrong went wrong, and we kept throwing money at it, trying to, to spend money on the infrastructure and, and drawing up uh, very expensive plans for our new property, and, and we just kept throwing money and throwing money and throwing money at it, and it became the impossible situation. After seven years of this, diligently working every single day, we're sitting at a board meeting, and the board members throw up their hands, and they just said, this is the impossible situation, Nothing is going right. Everything goes backwards, and we need to pull the plug on this. We need to give the land back to the original owners. We need to take the for sale sign that's been setting out in front of our building for seven years. We need to take it down, and we're done. That night, as I drove home for that board meeting, I put seven years of my life in a vision. Everything that I could do, I poured into that. And what I realized driving home I'm going to have to stand in front of our congregation on Sunday and tell them, you know, the land that we bought, we no longer own. You know, the million dollars that we all sacrificed and raised, we don't have hardly anything left. You know, the, the for sale sign that we've had out, we're taking it down because it will not sell. And as I'm driving home, what I realized, that it has become the death of a dream. And tears are flowing down my face. I am, I'm a wreck. I can't even see the road. And I pull off on the side of the road, lay my head on the steering wheel, and I'm hitting the steering wheel saying, God, where are you in all of this? How could I have missed you this bad when I was so convinced you led us down this road and now we're back at zero, we're right back where we were seven years ago. Our church will never follow me as a leader again. Epic failure. The next morning when I got up, it felt like I had a hangover. I've never had a hangover, but I I think this is what it would feel like. (laughs) I looked in the mirror and my eyes were swollen that I had cried so hard. The death of a dream. If you've ever experienced that, you know how devastating it is. The thing that you put your, your soul into and now it's gone. That very morning, the death of a dream, a realtor called me. He said, Pastor, I want you to... Meet me at a warehouse. I want to show you a warehouse. I said, David, I don't want to see a warehouse. I don't even feel like getting out of my house today. And he says, Pastor, I want you to come and look at this warehouse. You need to look at it. And I said, I'm not interested. I'm not going. He said, I want to come by your house, pick you up. You need to see this. And so he picked me up, and we drove out to where this old warehouse had set out in a field, and it had been grown up with weeds, been vacant for many, many years. Some investors had come in, and they had spent millions of dollars in doing all of the outside of it, all of the parking lot, and beautiful outdoor lighting. When we drove in, it was stunning. We sat down on that day with the owner, and I was not in much of a mood to negotiate that day. And he sat down and threw out the price of what the property was, and I shook my head and said, it's a million too high. And he said, then I'll take a million off today. I said, well, the other problem is, is that we have a building that we've had up for sale for seven years. And not one offer in seven years, we're asking $4 million for it. We can't sell it. He said, today I'll buy that building for asking price. I'll buy it for $4 million today. I said, well, here's another problem. We're in the biggest problem and the biggest uh, financial issue uh, in our our nation. Nobody's loaning money. There's not a bank anywhere that's going to give us any money. You know it and I know it. He says, I do know that. But he says, I have a brother that owns a bank in Los Alamos, New Mexico that will loan you the money. Well, I kept on. Well, there's another problem. We just took our people through a 3-year campaign and they gave and they gave and I I don't know if I can motivate them to give for another 3 years. He said if you'll motivate them, I'll be the first one to give to the capital campaign. Sitting at that table, he pulls out a checkbook, writes out a check, pushes it across the table as a check for $250,000. It was 9 months from sitting in that office that we had just walked into a brand new gorgeous facility. Twice the size that we had ever planned for at half the cost. It was the day before our grand opening that we had hundreds of our people that had come. Hundreds of people were there working and cleaning and getting everything ready. And next day, we're opening up. As everyone left, I'm standing in the church by myself, and I want to take one more stroll through this magnificent building. And I'm walking through the atrium, and I'm shaking my head thinking, How did we get here? How did this happen? It was a little over a year before that when I realized one day sitting in my office that this dream was dying. One of the most depressing days of my life, I pulled out a piece of paper and I wrote myself a letter. I folded it up, put it in an envelope, sealed the envelope, dated it, and then put it in the top drawer of my desk. There it had stayed for almost a year and a half, And on that day that I was walking through the atrium, I carried this letter with me. Standing there by myself late that night, I broke the seal, a letter I had not seen in a year and a half. Couldn't really even remember what I had written. And I opened it up, and this is the letter that I had written on one of the worst days of my life. Today is a day of deep discouragement for me. The dream of relocating seems to have come to an end. We have raised one million dollars over the last three years, and we need at least another three million just to get started. The economy has crashed, building has completely stopped in our city, no one is loaning money, there's no answers, there's no solutions. All I know that is Ephesians three twenty says, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. God tells me whatever I can imagine. He can outdo. I have a dream that we will sell our current facility for asking price. To build a building at least 60,000 square feet. We need a $3 million cash gift just to get started. Everything about this project is impossible. Every builder, every architect, every realtor says it cannot be done on our budget. The dream is now out of my reach and out of my human abilities. And fear wants to overtake me. But I have not been created to fear the unknown. God is able. God stopped the sun for Joshua. He parted the Red Sea for Moses. He shut the mouths of lions for Daniel. And he can perform a miracle for us. Today I declare by faith this will happen. The next time that I read this letter, I will be standing in a miracle. A miracle that I have dreamed of and will stand amazed at how he did it. What I do not see today, I see tomorrow. You know, as I stood there that day, it was a letter of faith that I could not see. But by faith, I was believing. Some of you need to write a letter. Some of you, you've let your dream die. Some of you, you have allowed it to die. and, And when Joseph was in the hole, it said out of nowhere, the Ishmaelites showed up. Out of nowhere. What I have found is in the darkest time of your life, out of nowhere, is when God shows up. God is able to do what what we cannot do in our lives. You know, let me share this one last story with you, and, and then I want us to pray. One of my favorite stories of all time, it's about two college students, Jim and Fred. Jim and Fred were going to the University of Houston, and they were college students there. Jim was a broadcast journalist major, and Fred was playing on the golf team. Every night, they would get into their dorm room, and they'd invite a bunch of friends to pile in there, horsing around. But Jim, the broadcast journalist major, would do this every night. He would grab a hairbrush and use it as a microphone, and he'd say, Here we are at the Masters Golf Tournament, and Fred is coming down to the 18th hole. If he puts this ball in, he will win the masters, and the crowd goes silent as he puts the ball. The ball is rolling and rolling and rolling. It drops in the hole, and he wins the masters, and the crowd goes wild. And he says, let me see if I can make my way through the crowd. And he holds the hairbrush up to Fred and says, Fred, how does it feel to win the masters? Well, by that time, every other friend, they're throwing pillows at them, saying, you guys are so weird. You guys are so strange. Shut up but they did that night after night after night. It was in 1992. Fred, Fred Couples, made it to the Pro Tour. Fred now had made it to the Masters Tournament. Fred came down to the 18th hole, and if he could sink this ball, he's going to win the Masters. He lines up, and the crowd goes silent, and he puts the ball, and when he does, it rolls and rolls and rolls, and it drops in. The crowd goes wild. Fred Couples wins the Masters tournament. They escort him off the green. They put on that iconic green Masters jacket. And then they escort him up the hill to be interviewed by CBS. When he arrives at the top of the hill, the sports announcer is no other than his old roommate, Jim Nance, who's holding out the microphone and saying, Fred, how does it feel to win the Masters? You see what they did, they rehearsed that over and over and over again. It has nothing to do with luck and it has nothing to do with chance, but it has everything to do with passion. Passion. Next week is a great day. Next week for you guys, it's a monumental day of raising $50,000. Next week is going to be a miracle day for you guys. Because what it does, it advances the vision. It moves you one step further. It was several years ago that that we were trying to build out a a children's facility. We needed $300,000 to do it. And I knew that we couldn't raise that in one offering, one time. And so the lack of faith that I had, I threw it out and said we need to raise $150,000 in one week's time. Well, I was choked on that when I said that because at that time, the largest one-time offering we had ever taken in our church was $30,000. But it was several weeks out that I heard the voice of inspiration, the whisper of God. And he said this, if you'll move the people into unity and agreement, and if everyone will participate, not 50%, not 80%, but 100%, then I'll move in the supernatural. When we brought everyone in on that Sunday, everyone gave 100%, even if it was just one dollar. And the children led the way, the children brought their offering to the front, they gave their offering. Teenagers came and they gave their offering. The college students came and they gave their offering, and then the adults followed. At the end of that service, they were scrambling trying to get a number for me to announce to them, and I was a nervous wreck that morning, thinking, what if it's only 30000 What if it's only 40000 This is going to take the wind out of us. It's going to be depressing. They handed me a piece of paper. I opened it up, and it was over $300,000. What I understood that day is that when the church operates as a body, not as fragmented pieces, but as a body, the supernatural takes place. I'd like to ask everyone to stand with me. This has been a presentation of Amarillo Fellowship a community dedicated to spreading the love and hope of Christ. For more information and other podcasts, visit amaryllafellowship.com.